We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Nosotros crecemos cuando damos. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Welcome to ROG, Return on Generosity. I'm your host, Shannon Cassidy. This podcast celebrates generosity at work, not financial giving. Giving valuable time, mutual respect, alternative perspectives, and genuine collaboration. Our special guest today is Dan Renart, a former president of the Maryland Hispanic Bar Association. Dan focuses his law practice, assisting clients with their divorce, custody, and personal injury matters. Dan works towards the safe and efficient resolution of complex family law, international, and domestic matters. Dan has been recognized for his legal knowledge and expertise by various accredited organizations, publications, and has been recognized as one of the 10 best attorneys from Maryland for client satisfaction. Dan also represents clients before the Senate and U.S. federal courts on international family law matters and is experienced in handling various personal injury matters. What I appreciate most about you, Dan, is your range of interests and your sense of humor. Welcome to ROG. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for being here and for connecting. And just full disclosure, Dan and I are personal friends. So I want to have you share with our listeners a little bit about your background. Well, so I uh, was born and raised in Arlington, Virginia. I'm a first-generation American, uh, meaning that uh, both my parents were immigrants my mother's from Ecuador. My father's from Uruguay. They met here in the 60s. Then, you know, fell in love, had children, spent 30 years uh, here uh, working for international organizations. So I am one of two. My brother is uh, older by about a year. And um, so, you know, was born and raised in the Washington, D.C. area. My mom is from a really large family. She's the last of 13. And my dad's family was, you know, kind of a little bit bigger than our own immediate family. Uh, he was um, one of four. I've always been used to having kind of like that big Latin family, you know, that's really loud, boisterous, like in your life. <laughs> how relevant is it that your parents are both immigrants? Like how did that impact you growing up and in general? Well, it's funny. It's uh, it's it's kind of a unique background, right? Because it's, I don't look, you know, or present kind of Latin American. You know, a lot of times... People look at me and they just see like a, a you know a forty six year old white guy. And growing up, that was the same. That was the same case. You know, you know, nobody ever really thought that I you know was Latino um, because I didn't you know I didn't I don't have an accent and I don't have other kind of markers you know that would inform somebody that you know I might be from somewhere else. So when I was growing up, it was it was kind of funny though because uh, you know like for example, I didn't have I didn't have. Uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches until I was, I was about 17. Yeah. <laughs> One random day I was like, I'd gotten my license and I was like, what is the, the big deal with PB and J? And I just, I, I couldn't take it anymore. My parents were always like, nah, it's, we're not going to, we're not going to get you that or whatever. Cause they were giving us, you know, food, cultural food that we would normally have. So, so I didn't, you know, one day I just drove to the store. I got, what I thought was the makings of PB and J went home, put it together. And I was like, okay, I mean, it's all right. <laughs> you know, I don't think. What's, I, it, yeah. I, What's all the buzz it's about not nostalgic <laughs> for me. You know, there's certainly no nostalgia there. Like another thing was like, when I was a kid, my, my mother, my parents used to like send us like, you know, with our lunch to school, like 
with soup, like for a child. And like a thermos? You know? Yeah. Luckily they stopped because the thermoses back then were so fragile. I mean, if you just flicked the side of it, you could hear the glass crack. Oh my gosh. The soup was everywhere. And then your lunch was ruined, you know? But like another thing is like, so like in, in Latin America, especially in Argentina and Uruguay, they have something called Milanesa, which is essentially like uh, Germans have schnitzel. It's a, you know, it's a pounded um, piece of meat and then, you know, breaded and fried. But it's in, you know, I guess here we have chicken fried steak, you know, or whatever. Uh, so that was the, uh, you know, we would take stuff for lunch at school. And it was so, it's always been part of my identity, right? Like whether it's having to translate for my parents because my parents didn't understand somebody who, who didn't understand them, taking things that were considered weird in for lunch, like, uh, like blood sausage, you know, something that my kids currently love. But like when I was a kid, I mean, in the eighties, nobody had that in a, in a random, you know, uh, parochial school, you know, cafeteria. And did kids make fun of you, Dan? Not really. I mean, growing up, I was kind of very, always very self-assured. I found a lot of success in sports as a kid. My brother and I both did. So we were always, you know, people were always kind of seeking us out and kind of wanting to hang out with us and stuff. And so we went to small parochial kind of elementary school from like kindergarten all the way through eighth Mm -hmm. grade. So the only like kind of bullying opportunity that ever kind of ever really presented itself ever was once I'd gotten out of that and gotten to high school, but I went to Gonzaga for high school, which is a prep school in DC. And even there, you know, I, my brother was ahead of me a year ahead of me. I knew guys who were juniors and seniors because of swimming. So like I already had like a, a vast group of friends. So nobody really messed with me. I remember there was this one kid, Chuck Marmer, who was a senior when I was a freshman mm-hmm. He saw me. He saw somebody kind of picking on me one day, and he just pulled him aside. He's like, and was no. like ah. and so like that was the end of that. <laughs> you know? Oh, that's. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, so, as you were talking about your your family and the culture with which you were raised, and your awareness, and you identify as a Latino, how has that helped you to represent or support, be an ally for individuals who do have those markers, as you described, that may not get as much inclusion as perhaps you do? Well, I mean, I think the the most service I've ever provided the Latin American community has been through kind of non-billable kind of work in, in doing stuff like volunteer work through like the Maryland Hispanic Bar Association. I've been kind of intimately in, intertwined with that association for since almost since the beginning of my practice, really. I mean, so early on, I, I was barred in 2007. And then probably by 2008 or nine, I was involved in something called Leadership Academy. The Maryland State Bar Association has this core group that basically they pick very young lawyers to kind of get together and put together a public service program of some kind. And they're all different. And it's a very open thing. So it's it's kind of really left up to the participants to kind of put this together. And then through that, I met a couple of attorneys, uh, Dave Crum and Pilar Nichols. And they basically, after, uh, and, and Jessica Kinkosa, actually, I, I became lifelong friends with them from that day forward. And so they were already kind of in the Maryland Hispanic Bar Association. So I probably started there maybe like in 09 or 2010. 
And I've been involved ever since. That kind of led me to be a board member for a couple of years. As part of that, I've always been involved in kind of, you know, helping the endorsement committee kind of interview and select applicants for judicial positions and give recommendations to the governor, which I think is is one of the more important roles that we've had. At times, we've had to get vocal. You know, there's lots of kind of things that have happened since that time, like the Real ID Act. I don't know if you are aware, but Maryland's one of the few places where you can still get a license without necessarily being a, a U.S. citizen. It's meant to kind of help people, Latinos and other individuals who may not have you know, documentation of a citizen, you know, or maybe have, are in some form of adjustment of status, but it allows them to have the ability to drive and the ability to be insured, right? And the ability to work and things of that nature. So, which is more important because you don't want people who are unlicensed, unregistered, uninsured driving around your state like crazy, you know? And so you're talking about this billable hour campaign that you told me about, which is the, um, is this the AAML? Yeah. So the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers has a nationwide, it's a nationwide organization. I'm a fellow. There's probably like 32 of us in the state of Maryland only. So it's a, it's a, it's a very restrictive organization in that you have to take an exam to get in. You have to be invited thereafter. There's like a, you know, kind of an oral test or certainly an interview. So it's a, it's a really kind of, um, it's a, it's a great organization and they have this thing called the Billable Hour Campaign, where essentially they ask that fellows throughout the country donate one hour of their time. So basically, and you 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 could do a lot more if you'd like, you know. But basically, they're asking that you donate, you know, per year, uh, and it's up to you. It's kind of entirely, um, you know, altruistic because you just donate the money, and then it goes into a foundation, and the foundation decides where to allocate the money for essentially programs throughout the United States that they become aware of because of fellows or other individuals um, that improve and help the community with family laws. So like, for example, in Maryland, we're going to pitch the foundation, an organization uh, that uh, I forget exactly what it's called, but it's it's an organization that started here in Maryland by a former foster child. This guy grew up and he realize that, you know, these children basically have nothing to take things back and forth from their foster home to the next foster house or whatever. And they usually just are given a trash bag, which could be like, how demeaning could that be, you know? And so this guy basically came up with a wonderful idea, which was he would raise funds. And then he gives basically the children, you know, foster children throughout the state, a bag you know, a suitcase, a backpack, some materials, some things that they can call their own. And so it, you know, it it gives the child dignity, but it's a great, it's an excellent group. I I wouldn't go at, you know, if anybody's ever looking for a family law attorney, I don't know why they would go anywhere else other than to AAML.org. It's in almost every single state. You know that those individuals have been vetted, that they've been tested, that they have basically you know, it's like a, it's like a board certification process, essentially. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Congratulations on receiving that, Dan. I know that's such a, it's a real honor to have accomplished that and to be vetted and interviewed and chosen really to participate and that your passion is there. You know, is there a particular case that you wouldn't mind sharing with us that was really, um, 
place where you felt like you were able to make a contribution and and demonstrate your generosity? Uh, so there was a case, uh, I met this young woman who uh, was a waitress near my house. I was off with two friends and I met her. And, you know, as a result, uh, she had twin girls, you know, and I, you know, I had offered to give her, you know, a free consultation if she needed it or whatever. And about two weeks later, she called me and she had just experienced a domestic violence situation with her ex. And this guy, you know, apart from being horrific to or, towards her, like, you know, just not a nice person, but was very kind of dubious, I would say. So in any event, this woman was a couple of years younger than me, had children, twins who were the age of my oldest child, right? And so I kind of felt for her, I was, you know, so I felt the need to kind of step in and say, all right, you know what, I'll, I'll help you out. So I, I ended up doing a pro bono domestic violence case, which was easy to do, right? She's not going to be able to hire an attorney. You know, she's a waitress. She's not getting child support. She's getting, you know, most people will look at the situation and she's basically, you know, getting any assistance she can from any place that she can. And it's just, it was one of those things where I was, I really thought, you know, having seen so many cases like hers, that I thought, if I don't help, then, you know, I'm just going to feel, you know, like I could have done something more. And I ended up representing her on a pro bono basis um, in front of, you know, the, on a case that went to trial. The guy actually went out, got an attorney, even though we had gotten the, the domestic violence order entered, got her custody initially, and emergency family maintenance, which is a form of kind of child support in the domestic violence uh, kind of stage of a case. But then I filed for, you know, this pro bono case. And... Um, and it was funny because the case ended in December. In December is when a, an attorney kind of sees, especially a young lawyer, starts to see kind of where their their bonus is kind of coming in or whatnot, right? Because I was on a pay structure where it was like salary plus commission after a certain point, right? So usually by September, you know, I was getting bonus checks and stuff like that. But it was one of those things where, you know, you could see like the cases that were coming in and like the amount of money that you were bringing in and then starting to calculate, oh, I'm going to get a great check this month. You know, <laughs> I remember representing her like it really was kind of the, one of those things where it was very selfless because towards the end in December, I realized this case doing this pro bono cost me personally like $10,000 in bonus. Right. But uh, I never looked back and I never regretted it. I mean, it was um, it was one of those things that has always kind of uh, helped me kind of grow. You know, um, that person has sent me so much business. It's probably paid me back a thousandfold. Not that I ever expected that to ever happen. Yeah. Was the case successful? Oh, yeah. She got she got uh, sole legal and primary physical custody of the kids. She got a fair amount of child support. He He had to have kind of like... He had to do kind of supervised visitation for a little bit and then do some parenting classes, like including anger management, stuff like that. It was a good result. I had a great draw for a judge too. Uh, down in, it was in a Calvert County case. Um, so it was, it was a good result. That's great. And like what compels you to, first of all, even to choose your profession, there's endless possibilities with what you could do with your background and your intelligence, you chose this. Like, what was the reason this was the place you wanted to invest your strengths? 
Well, I would say from a place of, you know, we would talk about generosity. I mean, you know, one of the things I think that is kind of intertwined throughout my entire political career, both personal and like, and professional is mentorship, not only being a mentor, but also having mentors, you know, I mean, that is just free time that you give to somebody else, right. To help them along, right. To help the kind of the global group. I remember when I went to law school, my primary goal was not to, not to go without, you know, without employment. I, it, it kind of, it terrified me to like be unemployed, right? Because we were looking at the, at the, the meltdown of the economy in 2007 when I was coming out, you know what I mean? That was one of the things that I wanted to make sure I had I, like some form of employment, right? I just got married in 04. We bought a house. I want, you know, I'd been going to law school for three years. And so I had a mentor at the law school who was a priest, but also he taught family law. I had worked for several years at a large law firm in D.C., Arnold Porter, as a paralegal for several years. Um, and I knew that I didn't really want to do that type of work, the, the big firm law. I knew I didn't want to do that transactional stuff uh, because I saw I just didn't feel like it was something that I would like very much. And I wanted to get into court. I knew that the the people who had the most job security were not just you know the smart guys, but the, the smart guys who could do it on their feet in in a courtroom. Litigators are you know are hard to come by, like really good litigators, and that was one of the things I wanted. Like I, I wanted to get into court a lot, but I also wanted to. I've always wanted to be in a job where I could help people, and those two kind of marry well in family law, right? Because you're representing good people at their worst time, whether it's their, their worst time where their behavior is just absolutely bad, or they're just floundering and having a real difficult time dealing with stuff that's just way over their head. Like maybe their own mental illness or the, somebody else's mental illness uh, or addiction, things of that nature. So it was one of those things where a mentor of mine was like, what, you know, we're talking it through in his office and, and he said, you know, why don't you do family law? He's like, you'd be great for it. You'd get lots of courtroom time. You know, it's, you know, you, you're not going to get rich off of it, but you certainly would make a good living and a very comfortable living. And, you know, you could find any, any sort of spectrum of success within that. So he put me in touch with a guy he knew who was, who was a fellow of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers. And then that guy became my mentor. His name is Paul Reinstein from 2006 forward. I mean, I was still in law school when I started working for him in the summers. I stayed on. And uh, my group now is a group that's been together since 06. Yeah, like the four of us, have, we've left one firm and kind of moved to different firms. But the four partners have, yeah, and I was an associate, like, you know, at the time. But we all went, like, moved together and kind of went off and kind of did our own thing and started our own law firm. Yeah, Oh, thanks for that background, Dan. And I think that the puzzle pieces are coming more clearly together for me now because like here you talked about the confidence you had as a young person, you know, you're an athlete, so you know how to compete and strategize to get an outcome and your intelligence and your kindness. So like those pieces coming together in a way, like, how can I leverage this to be of service? Which I think is a question all of us ask ourselves, you know, of the strengths I've been given, how can I put those together in a way where I could add value and make a contribution? So 
So this really makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that the story about Paul is a really good one because I know you are a mentor and I want to hear more about that. But, you know, with Paul being the AAML and, you know, just tell me a little bit about him. So he, um, he's, uh, so he graduated law school. He's from, he's from Philly, actually. He uh, finished up at Villanova. Mm-hmm. He started off at Notre Dame for two years, uh, then went to Villanova for, and finished up there. And then uh, went to Catholic law, which is how he kind of met the, the my first mentor, right? Who was a professor who kind of put me in touch with him. So he he got out of law school in '81 and then started practicing, and kind of at that point in time was just doing whatever, you know. He did a whole host of things back then. People didn't specialize as much as they do now. So he did like a little bit of criminal, a little, quite a bit of civil, some personal injury, some family, you know, and eventually. His practice turned into predominantly family law because it was much more stable. And, you know, it provides more stability. Uh, personal injury is one of like you know you can you can take highs, but then you got to save up because there's some lows, and then you know it's just up and down. It's it's very volatile, which is great because you know that was something I always kind of wanted in my practice. Like is to be you know I can see how Paul's an incredibly well-rounded lawyer because he has that breadth of experience in other areas that you don't really get, you get a little myopic if you only kind of do one area of law. And it was, you know, by the time I started practicing, I took on any case I could on the side, whether it was, I've taken landlord-tenant cases, I've taken, you know, when I was a young lawyer, so I did some LNT cases, I've taken mm-hmm. personal injury cases, I've taken the other side of that, which is the insurance defense um, cases, obviously family law cases, domestic violence, contract. I would take kind of like a couple smattering of cases as, you know, whenever something kind of came around and I could handle it, mainly to kind of educate myself about a different area of law. And um, because I saw how how incredibly well-rounded Paul is as a lawyer. And I, like, that's, I've always wanted to be like that. I used to, for example, when I started out, I used to try to script things for court, mm-hmm. which is like, it's impossible. You know, like I, I, I started kind of stopping the, the, the outline making of like question and answer, question and answer. Sometimes clients want that, but in general, I stay away from it because it sounds too contrived mm-hmm. in court if it's it can. too rehearsed. Yeah. And so Paul, I mean, literally takes, I mean, he takes a yellow pad and he will do an outline, but it's like, it's not even a question. It's just the answer. It just does answer, 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 answer. So it's just like this list of information. And it's because he does it because he listens to the answer of the individual and he just draws out the information he wants. The, the yellow page is basically the elements of the information that he wants, that he needs to argue what he knows what he wants to argue. I'm not there yet, but it's definitely like where I'm, I'm, I'm trying to develop that. But I think what you're saying is like the more experience you have, the more skillful you can be about doing the thing you do with like less formality even, right? And, and I'm sure you do a load of preparation, but it's not scripted. And so formal, you're, you're allowing yourself to really listen, which I think is a skill that all of us need. So talk to me about mentoring for you. Like what, how do you, uh, I know you give back in a lot of ways, Dan, but like, what are some of the ways that you mentor others and why? Well, I think, I think Paul's taught me a lot. For example, Paul's door has never been closed to me ever. He might be doing something right then and there and like having a hearing in his office, but, and I'll go in afterwards, but he's always been available. He's always made himself available. So I try to do the exact same as well. 
you know, we've got three associates here at the firm, two associates and a law clerk, and then some paralegals. But I mean, we have a very much open door policy. So that's one of the things, you know, is to try and, and kind of teach and educate our own associates, but then also others as well. I mean, Paul taught at the Judicial Institute for years. You know, you don't get paid for that. He also taught at, you know, through uh, MCPEL or the, the MSBA. Um, you know, he's taught hot tips for family law for I know, like 30 some odd years. You know, again, something he's never paid, never paid for. Uh, fall and spring. So there's it's at least twice a year, if not more. He has served, you know, as a, as a, in section council, which is kind of like a, the MSBA has different boards for different areas of law. So family law, yeah, the Maryland State Bar Association. So the Maryland State Bar Association has a, a board for family law and then immigration law and criminal law and every single one, right? And so the, that board is called the section council. And it does all sorts of stuff. Like I'm in the executive committee for the Family Law Section Council of the Maryland State Bar Association currently. I'm actually the vice chair this year, so I'll be chair next year, which Paul was at one point during his career as well. So, you know, he's always pushed me to kind of and encouraged me to do that, right? And it's it's not something I get paid for. You know, there's meetings several times throughout the year. There's we have an active uh, litigation or uh, legislative uh, group. I've testified before the various Senate and House committees for the state level for legislation that they're considering that's family law based. I've written testimony more so than presented, you know, oral testimony. You know, so it's getting involved at that level. But it is one of those things that you, you're never promised any value, right? So you don't do it for that. You do it because. It's, you know, you want to see the growth of family law, you know, in the state and in, in, you want to see the improvement throughout the practice of law uh, in the state. Mm-hmm. What are some of the improvements that you want to see? And, you know, what also could you teach us about family law that we probably don't know, like misconceptions or whatever? But let's just start with improvements. What kind of improvements do you hope to see? Well, I mean, recently uh, we had a major score last year. The The grounds for divorce the, the, it, within the state of Maryland changed. Maryland was a fault-based grounds for divorce state. And it, it was this convoluted structure of limited divorce and then absolute divorce. And, you know, and it took a really long time and it was very expensive particularly because for the most part, you know, you needed to kind of have physical separation between a husband and a wife. And that required setting up two homes, which was twice the expense, you know, and it was just, and then you had to be separated for a year before you could get an absolute divorce. So it was a pain, you know, people were fighting over the reasons and trying to cast narratives that didn't really work. And it was super expensive. And luckily, last year, the Section Council, with the assistance of uh, actually both a Republican and a Democrat in the State House and in, in the Senate, it was cross-filed bills. I think it was uh, SB 36. So that was um, the you know the the Senate bill, and then uh, HB 14. I think it was the the one in the House. But in any event, there was cross there were identical cross-filed bills that sought to change that and make it less, I don't want to say easier, but make it a little bit less difficult to kind of go through this draconian process that we had. And so 
and it's been great. It's been in place now since October 1st. It's one of those things that's allowing people to, you know, to, to address a divorce. We now have divorce based on either physical separation, which can be six months separation, but you can live in the same house. So if you're living in separate rooms, that counts, right? There's also divorce by what is irreconcilable differences. Now, the appellate courts have not kind of had a lot of opportunity to kind of tell us what that's going to mean and like in the future and look like, but it is something that's kind of working its way through the court system. And then there's always going to be by mutual consent, which is the the adult way of going about it, right? Sitting down, reaching an agreement, addressing all the issues, putting it in writing, signing it, and then going forward with, you know, just the, the procedural process that's required. So that's something that's like a huge goal for like the citizens of Maryland. Last year, the, the state legislature and the section council was incredibly, incredibly busy. Uh, and there was lots of family law, laws that were passed. Um, what I'd like to see in the future would probably be, you know, more work that we do that will lead to, I'm hoping, a s- statute that sets out all the factors for custody. Because right now, you can find them in appellate decisions, but they're not kind of listed neatly in one statute, right? And if it's clear, if the statute's clear, that it helps the citizens, because that means somebody can handle their own divorce, right? I mean, the the vast majority of cases are people who are representing themselves. They don't come from like, you know, multimillionaires. And it's not like every, you know, I mean, the vast majority of cases are cases where there's at least one, if not two, self-represented litigants. So it would it would serve like the people of the state more so than anybody else. That's that's really interesting. Well, I'm happy to hear about that progress. It sounds like it's, a lot of people will benefit from that, including those who litigate and represent these individuals who are seeking a divorce. So, you know, there are misconceptions about lawyers and would love to get your perceptions, Dan, on like busting some of those myths? Well, um, I think the greatest misconception is that we lie. Um, you know, in fact, I think I'm pretty sure, I know Maryland definitely has it and probably every single state has it where there's a requirement to be candid with the court, meaning to tell the truth. Now, just because somebody doesn't entirely transparently tell the truth or maybe takes argument a little too far or puffs up, you know, facts in their argument doesn't necessarily mean that they're not being truthful. The other thing is, is there's a lot of, a lot of times you'll find, you know, people, prospective clients who come in, who've done a lot of reading on the internet and have a lot of misconceptions about kind of what they can get and what, you know, and and it's, it's incumbent upon an attorney to be fully transparent with them and tell them even the stuff that they don't want to hear. I mean, I've had clients ask me repeatedly the same question four or five times because they want a different answer. And they're just not going to get it from me, you know, and, you know, other people shouldn't, other attorneys shouldn't feel that they should give in. So, I mean, as far as uh, misconceptions or, you know, um, we are a very highly policed, highly regulated profession. We even have a duty to turn each other in if something, if somebody does something unethical, clients will think that, that somebody did something unethical and it's, it's very common in family law. You know, where somebody will, you know, accuse an, an attorney, another party will accuse me or somebody else of, of doing something unethical. It's, it's very common to get a letter from the Attorney Grievance Commission 
um, just kind of checking in on stuff. One of my friends, who's also a fellow, <laughs> said, you know, if you're if you haven't gotten a letter from the Attorney Grievance Commission, then you're not doing it right. You're not trying hard enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but it's it's one of those things where you know it's. Uh, I think some of the most honest and hardworking people are lawyers. I, I like lawyer jokes too, but uh, it's one of those things where. You know, I wish we had a better representation. You know, when you get one bad apple, it kind of spoils it for the rest of us. So that's, I think, what I would leave everybody with. Mm, Thank you. I appreciate that. And I think it's important to hear from individuals who are representative of these certain, you know, these professional communities so we can learn more and appreciate just what are some of the challenges and what are the ways in which you see generosity in your own career, in your workplace, for those who have been generous to you. So just to recap a couple of highlights from what I heard you say, Dan, I'd love for you to add to that for key takeaway tips, because you know individuals who are listening may not get to have the same career path as you, but there's a lot of nuggets that you shared that are applicable to everyone. One of them is around celebrating where you come from. I think that's a key thing. Like even just the stories about what you brought to lunch as a as a young guy, um, you know, just honor honor your heritage and, and where you come from and celebrate that with with abandon. Um, then you talked about how you give back and how you listen to people, and you were thoughtful in trying to find a career that you could deploy your strengths and gifts. So that's something all of us can consider. How can we be of service to others? And then you were really grateful for and honoring your mentor. And you were very specific about ways in which he has modeled the kind of lawyer you want to be. And I think that's something that all of us can do is to just be reflective about who helped us to get where we are, who models behavior that we want to emulate and be grateful for them and and tell them specifically why you appreciate them. I think that's so good. And then at the end here, um, with some of your standards of operation is tell the truth. Right, that's something all of us can do to be candid and clear, and to and behave ethically. So, anything you would add to that, Dan? I, I think uh, in I would expand upon the be honest and say that you know being honest with yourself is a very important thing, right? Like the way that it applies to me is that as a young lawyer, I realized I might like somebody else's style in the courtroom, but I can't duplicate it. I'm not them. You know what I mean? I could try to emulate certain parts of it, but I have to be honest, right? I have to be honest with myself because it doesn't communicate well if you're trying to be somebody else, you know, and, and it's, and I think it's because I, I saw a lot of people trying to be other people in the courtroom and I'm like, they're just not, they're not good at selling it, you know? And I think that that goes for yeah. every type of job. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a, probably a big part of acting or, you know, or something like that, that kind of does that. Uh, certainly an attorney, you know, when you're a lawyer or a doctor, you also have to sell yourself, right? Because if you're, you know, if you're going to recommend to a, a patient to have a surgery or something, then they have to trust you. And you, you're you not really trustworthy if you're trying to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. Well said. Yeah. Being authentic and being honest with yourself about who you are and, you know, of course, growing, but being, you know, centered in your, in your values and who you are. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights with us. And most importantly, thank you for being my friend. Thank you. I appreciate it. I loved being here with you guys today. 
Thanks for listening to ROG, Return on Generosity podcast. Please help us grow by subscribing and reviewing us on your favorite podcast player. And for more information, visit bridgebetween.com. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give.